From Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin, Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. It's primary season, and earlier this week, seven states held primary elections, including in Montana, where I produce this show. Because of the 2020 census, we've gained an additional seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. This week, we'll listen to my interview with former state representative Tom Winter. He ran in Montana's new western congressional district as a Democrat against Monica Trinnell and Cora Newman. It's Thursday, June 9th, and this is News Nerds. This Tuesday, seven states held primary elections, and today we'll be taking you to my state of Montana, where, for the first time since 1993, we have two congressional districts. Under the Montana Constitution, a five-member districting and apportionment commission has the power to change the boundaries of congressional districts based on census data. This year, the redistricting commission was made up of two Democrats, Kendra Miller and Joe Lamson, two Republicans, Jeff Essman and Dan Stusek, and Chairwoman Maylin Smith, a civil prosecutor for the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes, who acted as a tiebreaker. After more than a dozen districts were proposed by the commission, both Democrats backed commission proposals 11 and 13, while Republicans supported proposal 12. Democrat-backed CP11 included urban areas like Helena and Livingston, communities that have historically leaned Democratic or been moderate. The proposal split Flathead County, located in the, in the northwest of Montana, to balance District 1's population. The second redistricting map, favored by Democrats, CP13, partitioned part of Lewis and Clark and Gallatin counties, while including Democratic-leaning areas like Bozeman and Helena. Democrats argued that these proposals would create a competitive district that could turn Montana purple again. Ultimately, Chairwoman Smith sided with conservatives. Commenting on the proposal, Republican Jeff Essman said, quote, It will require energy on the part of both sides to elect someone and retain them, and it will require candidates that listen, unquote. The final district was adopted on November 12, 2021, and split Pondera County roughly in half. We'll have maps of proposals 11, 12, and 13 on our website at newsnerdspodcast.com slash Montana Maps. Well, this week we'll be talking to one of the candidates in the Democratic primaries from Montana's Congressional District 1. Tom Winter represented the Missoula area as a representative for District 96 in Montana's House. He flipped the seat from red to blue and served for two years from 2019 to 2021. Late last year, he announced his congressional bid against Democrats Monica Trinnell, a former Olympic rower and lawyer, and Cora Newman, who works to develop rural communities. About three and a half hours before polls closed in the primaries, I talked to Tom over Zoom. Since then, the results from both parties' primaries have been announced. Former Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke narrowly won the Republican nomination, defeating Al Oshesky, a doctor and former Montana State Senator and Representative. Monica Trinnell won the Democratic nomination, with Cora Newman in second and Tom Winter in third. I started by asking Tom about his thoughts on Tuesday's primaries. Our values are our values, and I think they're Montana values. And I, I honestly, it does not seem like we will win, and a lot of that is because we've done the right thing. And so days like today are it's just a continuation of advocacy, you know? It's, it's, it's honestly like not stressful in a strange way. 
And I, I know that uh, you've been you, you've been in races before. Uh, one that you lost yes. to Kathleen Williams, right? And then mm-hmm. another that you that you won and became a representative for the ninety sixth district. Um, uh-huh. So, since you've been in this kind of situation before, um, I, I what what are the differences and has that work really prepared you for something like this? You you just Today, said that. I'm- that yes. that you uh, might not win uh, to Cora or Monica, but knowing that, uh, d- did that prepare you for this? I would say, you know, it was interesting the last cycle. So I was, I ran in the, for listeners, I ran in the primary last cycle um, in the Democratic primary for the Montana congressional seat where Montana was one big state seat. And, you know, we folded our campaign. We were on the ballot anyway by that time. But when Governor Bullock put us thoughtfully into basically like a California style actual lockdown, and that kept that saved lives during COVID, we suspended our campaigning. We used the remaining money we had to get um, to do mutual aid, and we were illegally importing. Um, this is when masks weren't a political thing. Importing, you remember there were no masks at that time. It was yeah. really scary. And I went, I was campaigning, and I remember thinking how, I remember thinking something was wrong. <laughs> It was scary for everybody, but the world felt really like everything was kind of on a thread. And I went to a community hospital because I was campaigning at the time. And a a nurse opened the door wearing a diaper on her face, held together with um, rubber bands because they didn't have masks and they were worried about getting COVID. And it was so it was so jarring and so uh, disturbing. And she was so demoralized by having to do this that, you know, that kind of showed where things were going. It was pretty clear. So I, the last one didn't really feel like a win or a loss in the first place. We, we, we were done and that goose was cooked. And we, we spent a lot more time delivering these supplies. It was, a, that, it was more just scary. Um, before that, winning that election, which I talk about a lot of my campaign, it was a group that voted for Trump plus 11 points. I am a progressive young Democrat. I was younger then. Um, and I, you know, I, that was one of the best things in my life and one of the hardest things we've ever done. And I'd say to people today, there's a lot of good people running in primaries across the country. And a lot of people in Montana who are running in primaries for like state legislature. Nobody asks you how it's going. Nobody tells you you did a good job. There's no, no reporters. You don't have staff. Those are completely like unsung stories and kind of like unsung heroes of when we're doing these elections because they are winning and losing today on the strength of their ideas. And it's just happening without anyone really paying attention. And I was in one of those races and we won, but it was a slog. And that was really, that win really prepared me for anything because it just took, it was a real close race. It took a long time. It was very acrimonious. You know, I, I, we were doing it pretty much alone. And that, that was just so, this is, this is a cakewalk. And it means that we're doing the right thing by getting our values out there in the first place. So the, the, my podcast goes to people throughout the nation and also huh? throughout the world. So for listeners who may not know, this is a new congressional district. This is a product of the census that, that in 2020. So because of that, uh, Montana, where me and Tom live, uh, we got a new uh, district when we only had one. We had two in the past, but this has been really exciting, I'm sure, for everybody for but especially Tom um, and you have been running against two other Democrats um, 
Monica Trinnell and Cora Newman. There's also uh, another, the, the Republican primary uh, is also being held today. Uh, and there's many candidates, but one of the, the headliners in this race is Ryan Zinke, who was former interior secretary in the Trump administration. Uh, and there has been a lot uh, from this campaign. It's kind of, I've been following it because I live here, but also because of uh, reaching out to candidates. Um, and it's been interesting to see kind of more of a rural race, but then also something that's close to me. Um, and now we get to see how everything plays out today. Um, you said that you may not win, uh, and you said because we've been doing the right thing. What are you expecting from tonight, and how are you re re reacting to that? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, first off, you were talking about this new district. I think it's, you know, if I can say to your listeners, too, um, one, thank you for listening. Two, it's what we're here, what we've seen here is I think Montana is the first state in the country to have two seats, two congressional seats. They're apportioned by population, lose them, go to one seat. And then we were, we were the second largest congressional district in the country and then physically, and then now back to two because we've gained so many people. The opportunity, and that's why I speak about this, you know, this election for both parties, really. And I am no fan of the Republicans, as has been said. Um, but for both parties, this is, an, this is an opportunity, hopefully, for us to build our institutional networks and, our, and build up the civic infrastructure of the state. We now have two primaries rather than one. We have two separate individual arguments about different parts of the state, which have very different needs and very different wants and very different aspirations and problems. There's double the civic infrastructure occurring. There's more than one campaign winning and losing, including my campaign. It's a big opportunity, I think, and I, I advocate for the political system in general. Many people are turning away from electoralism. Many people think that everything is falling apart in American democracy. I advocate that we can reinvigorate it. One way that Montana is happening, and we're really lucky, is getting these new contests. Because then it means that in this new era of social media, of a lot of bigotry and hate, and you know the breakdown of a lot of the civic infrastructure that our parents and grandparents built, we are rebuilding it in the way that we think might be useful. And we have that opportunity because of the census and getting this new seat. Knowing I'm a part of that and knowing we're a part of that makes it, at the very least, makes it all worthwhile because we have done everything we can to model campaign behavior, campaign practices that are based specifically in Montana on the values that we not, we don't do polls based on the values that we know are here. And based on the values that I won my election previously in that district that was real Trumpy. Like I, you know, people wanted us to, what? I mean, I, we're, we're advocating for universal healthcare because poorer states and more rural states like Montana will never have as many doctors or as many specialists and native communities will never be given the priority or just the same needs as wealthier places on the coasts. These things pull well. We believe, and you know, nationally they pull very, very well. And we have reason to believe they pull north of 60% in the state of Montana, yet no party supports universal healthcare. And that's healthcare rationing for the poor. That means that some people might not be able to get a mastectomy or might not be able to get gender affirming care or might not be able to get something because if they don't have money. And many Montanans, because we have the 48th lowest wages in the state, in the country, don't have money. And so the experience of Montanans is to wait for care, to not get health care. And fighting for those things goes beyond one election cycle. Or in similar, like, you know, our state legislature has 
come after specifically trans children in our community, of which there are very few in Montana, because we have a low population. And you know, the fact that we're seeing powerful people come after some of the most vulnerable members of our society, and we have the privilege as a campaign to remind Montanans that that is not us, that we are better than that, is meaningful. And it means that this win or loss, we have been speaking about these issues when other people haven't and showing them and modeling behavior that shows that yes, like, you know, maybe Ezra, maybe one day you'll run for office or someone else will, who has been turned off by the political process before. Hopefully they've seen our campaign, win or lose, and seen that there's a way to do this with your integrity intact and to win or lose and still move the ball forward on issues of equality and equity. So tell me about your background and then we'll get into why you decided to get into politics specifically. Yeah, uh, so background, I was born in the Midwest. I came here when I was to Montana, like so many people when I was 21, I believe. And I did that thing here and fall in love with this place. I was living on a porch in Missoula for a bit of a friend of mine's. I had a, you know, Montana, I didn't grow up here, um, but I did grow up here because Montana, my entire adult life has been spent here. And I wouldn't be the person I am today without the values of this place. And it taught me everything, honestly. And eventually even weirder, my whole family moved here. <laughs> like I'm not married, um, my, but my family, like I mean, my brother, her partner, my mother, her partner, they all moved to Montana too. And it's something that I didn't expect. And it's, it shows the power of this place and the power of what it does in a positive way to people living here that they saw what I was doing and were like, we want to leave the Midwest as well. And so they came here too. And it just, it's been such a privilege to be a part of it all. And I, and I just want to, part of this thing I want to say to people too, if there's anyone listening from this state or not, oftentimes we get into these and it has, this is not me covering myself. This hasn't, this is there, this has been leveled against many, many people and not really me, interestingly, but many people will say and call into question your authenticity of whether or not you should be allowed to run for office because you're not from there. Montana and places with big identities and good state loyalty a lot of times, they have this worse. And it is, I want to tell everybody, it is a way to, and it's not been lobbed against me, so I'm not covering myself, but I've seen it used and what it's done, and this is helping my opponents because my opponents weren't born here. Like, it, what it does is it calls into question, it's trying to call into question what who is an in-group and who is an out-group. And it tries to delegitimize you and your ideas based on where you were born, which you cannot control. But you can in some ways control where you live. And I just, in the backdrop of all these rich white people, including my, I'm not rich, but including myself, privileged white people yelling at each other publicly about who's from here and who's not, we have some of the largest populations of native people in the country whose ancestors have been here for 10,000 years. I can only imagine as a privileged white male, what it must be like to be on the reservation in Montana and hear people like hear a bunch of rich people in Bozeman or Missoula yelling about who is more original to this place, which was originally stolen. And I, I just, we have to get away from this toxic, ridiculous, like I'm more authentically Montanan. 67% of the voters, we believe, I believe 60, and my staff isn't here, but they know, I think it's in the 60s, percent of the voting population in Montana was not born in this state. The Montana experience is settler colonialism, which is violent and negative in many ways, but also it's just 
people moving here and infilling this place. And regardless of whether that's morally right or wrong, that is what has happened. And that is the electorate. And we need to make sure, and I advocate in this campaign too, for like, it doesn't really matter whether or not you were born here. What matters is if you are a part of this community. And if you're a part of this community, you have every right to run and you should have an equal voice and say. Uh, well, why did you get into politics? And I know that you, you've been in multiple races now, uh, and it seems like you, you at least want to serve the community, if not like this job. I hate this job. Any sane person, honestly, would hate this. And I do too. And I, I, I do. I, it doesn't mean it's not worth doing. I, it's some, it, this can be some of the most demoralizing work and people will attack your family and you in ways that you don't imagine and in ways that are very hurtful um, and damaging to the people you love. And it is very difficult. And it doesn't mean it's not worth doing anyway. And I, anyone who's listening, who's thinking about getting involved in politics, I am double the age of the interviewer here, but I'm still counted as young in what I do, which should say something. We need, and that, you know, what we're doing here is why, why am I involved in this? Because the barriers have been put up to participation. We need to model that the barriers must come down. And that includes people, youth, which is not an experience because youth is, youth is not an experience in politics. It is a viewpoint and a worldview that is different and should be accepted and wanted in the community of politicians. But also we need to be, you know, that's why it's worth doing. And, and I, I just, you know, I often, I often say if people ask in settings like, why, you know, why do you want to be involved in politics? Because like, I'm a masochist, because I don't like, because I, I like being mistreated. That's not what it is. It's honestly, it's a joke. What it is is because I know the possibility of our communities. And I know the possibility of politics, progressive populist politics, popular policies that both parties don't believe in, that wealthy entrenched interests want to keep us from getting what we want and deserve. That includes universal health care, that includes ending oil and gas drilling. No one wants our public lands to subsidize the eventual death of our environment. We do that now. Broad swaths of the public think it's a bad idea. Universal health care, the same. Assault weapons ban. The people are with us. I can't even get my Democratic opponents in my primary to support an assault weapons ban. 67% of them Americans support it. I guarantee you, north of 50% of Montanans do. And the thing that stops it are these institutions that have bloated and rotted because they've made it so difficult and unpleasant to run for office and something that only the wealthy and older can do, usually white. And it needs to stop. And so I hope that we've been able, the reason I run is partly to model that people who are quote unquote, not, and not normal, because that's a loaded term, people who are going about their daily lives can weave political activism and running for office and being candidates into their lives in a ways that's positive for them and their community. Uh, another issue that is on the minds of uh, Montanans is wildfires that have been a real issue in the, the, the past years. Um, I don't know about out there in the Missoula area, but we've been getting a lot of rain, luckily, out, out here. But still, there's, there's future summers. There's also uh, areas of Montana that just may not getting, be getting that precipitation. There's always the potential for wildfires and that's something that can be exacerbated by climate change and as we learn more about that that's something that is on a lot of your constituents minds at least it's on my family's minds 
What would you do about that issue in Congress, and how would you bridge the the, the partisan uh, gap that that we see today? That is a good question. So I would say I, I live in Polson now, and I'm actually north of Polson about 15 minutes. So I live okay. right up against the woods, and there actually was a fire. The East Boulder fire last year came within a mile or less of my house. We were under for a minute. We were under a mandatory evacuation, and then we weren't. And I many of my neighbors lost their homes. Uh, and I was told by the fire crew, which, you know, we often use the term heroic for public servants and stuff, but these people were putting their lives on the line to protect our houses. It was amazing. And I'm thankful, but they said that they were not sure in this new fire reality. This is the first year that they were telling people they might not be able to come back to their homes, even if they were within the uh, mandatory evacuation all summer. So I was told I might not be able to come back until October to my house, even if it hadn't burned down because they couldn't control the fires. We are in a new era that has been created by a political system that kowtows to the oil companies. These things have been done to us. I wanna tell every person who hears it, wildfire at this point is always climate change induced or influenced. There is someone to blame for what is happening to us and to our natural world here and it is mostly the Republicans, but many Democrats who take oil money, who believe that the thing we need to do is slowly transition. And I feel this as someone, again, who's, I'm not the youngest person in this call, but as someone who still has a long future, it will not be a good one if we don't do something about this. And so one of the things that I did in the legislature, there was the Rice Ridge fire in Sealy Lake, um, which is a valley north of Missoula at the time when I was representing Missoula. Um, I worked across the aisle, and this is an instructive thing, and I don't really know what to talk to take from this. I worked across the aisle, air quotes, with a representative who um, I knew was was very aggressively right and kind of Trumpy, but it was what we were trying to do because what had happened is that they were unable to escape the wildfire because they couldn't afford to leave, and so there were pregnant people there, etc. And they were inhaling massive amounts of particulate matter from the smoke. That leads, we think, and they did end up doing a study to long-standing issues with the um, with the baby and the and the health of the mother, and also with the community in general. We don't know actually in the modern world, I mean, epidemiologically, what smoke, wildfire smoke does to communities. We know it's bad. So anyway, I wanted to put a bill there at least to study the problem. We were going to get it through. It was going to help the community. And then he spiked it at the very end because he found out that I had won an election against one of his Republican opponents and he killed the bill. And then later on, two weeks later, I believe, he was sharing social media posts saying that people like me, his colleague, Democratic colleagues, should be hanged and advocating violence against people. I don't know, and I, I mean this to your listeners and to you. I still don't know if that was the right thing to do. I legitimized his space in the political process by working with him on a bill to help our constituents. And he used that to then turn around and call for violence against me personally, but also against everyone who had my views. And what do you do when you're talking about these existential threats like climate change and wildfire and then say, how do you work across the aisle? I don't believe you really can sometimes. But the thing is, I mean, oftentimes my own Democratic Party also is not really with us on these issues. Like around corruption, for instance, the United States House refuses to institute anti-insider trading laws. We know that 
Republican and Democratic lawmakers are basically enriching themselves knowing insider information. They refuse to fix it because that would mean that they wouldn't get money. The people are with us on these issues. The people are with me on my views on these issues. We know this because there's polling's been done. You have to take your appeals at this point directly to the people and have them force their current lawmakers to make a deal with these issues. Because otherwise, I, I, my worry is that we embolden by working across the aisle with anybody possible. What we do is we embolden and legitimize people who do not believe in the legitimacy of the process and wish violence upon our own constituents. Like, should I really do an anti-wildfire bill with Representative Fuller, who consistently argues against the humanity of trans children and targets them? I don't think so, because that would legitimize him. Many people disagree with me, but I am still working on this issue of how do you deal with this bad actors in this process when we have these existential threats? And I, I don't have an answer. Do you still work at uh, World Cell? I'm on commission base now. So like, no, really. Uh, running a, I haven't taken a salary for a while, which is no yeah. fun. Um, running a campaign is all encompassing. And honestly, if you're gonna ask for this, if you're gonna ask for the trust of people's votes, I, I just, you have to give it your all. I, I, that's just the decision I made. I kind of regret it because it'd be nice to have money. But <laughs> if we lose this election, hopefully I'll be getting a job again that pays. So we'll see. Um, so World Cell, for people who don't know, uh, it, it's, it's a high-speed internet company, right? That, that works to get that installed. Is that, is that, am I right about that? Yeah, we did. Um, it's broadband for uh, like poor and underserved and indigenous communities across the United States. So with the work that you did with that, um, how do you balance the, how do you balance uh, energy that is spent on that, some fossil fuels that may go into the high-speed internet? There, there's a lot of, of energy that goes into everything that we pick up. Everything that I'm yes. using here, some has petrol. I mean, petroleum is all around us. It's being used in everyday objects. The internet also is another mm -hmm. form that, that people don't know it because they're just typing away on their computers, but that also has energy behind it. Though a lot of things in the modern world do. How, how do you balance that? I, you know, I think there's, this is a great question that no one has asked me and I'm thankful for you doing it and positing it this way. We are all culpable in our own, in our, in the, in our, honestly, in what might be our eventual demise here around climate. And, but it is incumbent upon us, and I say myself as an American who is an empowered person, Americans are empowered, we're so the most powerful country on earth. And we have built this exploitative world worldview and model of our lives that is basically zero sum. It's either our, it, you know, it posits this concept that there's either our comfort and our wealth or a clean and healthful environment. I just don't believe that that's what it is. There's a growing group of us who know that what's actually happening is, you know, World Cell has a, definitely has a carbon footprint. My life has a big carbon footprint. I do have a truck. My house is, you know, I, we're, we're, um, I live on the reservation here. So actually our power comes from the dam at Flathead Lake, which had its own environmental impacts, of course, but it's owned by the Salish Kootenai and the power is low. The power price is low. So I've, decar I've removed, I've completely electrified my house as much as I can, I guess entirely. But that doesn't really do much. Still, the ions still come from the soup of the grid. Much, much of it is from oil, coal and oil. I, part of my advocacy is using the inherent privileges of being a white male, of being a Montanan, of being an American, 
of having a job that paid me well enough to be able to afford internet and to get my name out there and take time off and take time to do this campaign to advocate for change. There is no way to decarbonize your life immediately right now, but also that false dichotomy that oil companies will make and they have drilled into my head since I was a kid about like the way to solve it is through individual action. Like, you know, there will be no climate change if you just recycle your Coke cans and you cut the little things so the ducks don't get stuck on the six pack rings. That was a coordinated campaign by a PR group in order to show, to lessen the public calls for these multi-billion dollar international companies to be put out of business. And we are stuck now with this constant mantra of individual responsibility. The biggest polluters, the most carbon intensive industries are owned by multi-billion dollar corporations. It is them that must change. We have to use the tools at our disposal to do that. And unfortunately, given the modern world and the way it works, those tools are carbon intensive. So I hope that the, basically, if you want to look at it this way, the carbon footprint of running for office in the first place is very large. But I hope that that has been used to further beliefs and change attitudes so that in the future, if we don't win, and if I win, laws and legislation can be passed to lower the carbon footprint and attack those companies that have taken advantage of us. And that's the only way I can see doing this morally. And again, that's a great question. No one ever asks it that way. And it just shows like there are more thoughtful voices in this than oftentimes coming from other journalists, honestly. So there, there's been a, a fierce, fiery debate in Montana standards uh, over Monica Trinnell and Cora Newman. Uh, there's been negative, well, Monica Trinnell's uh, super PAC is what I think what it's called, uh, has run uh, negative ads on TV. There's, of course, there's going to be a bit of that in every election, but as a, as the third candidate um, in this primary, how do you interact uh, with the other candidates in your primary, and what what does that communication look like? So you know, this is the last day of the primary. I can be honest with you. We have tried. There's been there's been some really unfortunate and negative and a really damaging stuff. Um, said by many of the um, supporters for some reason, specifically of uh, Cora Newman about my family. One of them called my former employer. Um, these are people that they've been lifting up kind of and like using their campaign resources to show like, hey, here's a supporter. And I've emailed and called them multiple times and asked it to stop and said like, hey, I know you have a family too. Like, can we please just, can you ask your supporters to not do this? Can you please model better behavior? And I, uh, no response. And I called and emailed and talked to her personally, and she refused to say anything. I haven't disclosed that just because the you know the primary is over. So I just say this like I have no ill will toward her, but that was a really unfortunate aspect of this. I would say the more unfortunate aspect of all of it, though, has been that the two candidates with the most money and the most ability to impact people's views, even if they win or lose, because two of us are going to lose, has been that rather than fighting publicly about the issues they have been fighting against each other, basically on like who deserves it more or who has more money. And I, it's just, why do we do this? Why do we take donations? I don't like our campaign finance system. I think it's very ugly. But like, why do we take donations if not to get policy views and moral and community standard views out to the people so that we can better define what we stand for? That is why I raise money. And we didn't raise very much money because no one wants to support someone who supports universal healthcare and take away and like take away the rights of oil companies. But like, why do we do this? Well, every day, why do I do this job that's not very fun? 
I'm not doing it because I think I deserve it. I'm doing it because hopefully I am the avatar or the, you know, the, the, um, I'm hopefully able to assist the community values I learned as a Montanan to get a wider airing so that we can change our society and our policies and our government to be better. And this mudslinging about like who has more money and the super PAC and all this, I'm just, I'm sitting here on the sidelines being like, well, you know, neither of you support an assault weapons ban and none of you support universal health care. And they're about to take away the right to an abortion for women and people who can have children across the country. And Montana might be protected by our constitution, but the Republicans are going to change it. Uh, there is just to end a campaign yelling at each other rather than one yelling at bad actors or imploring voters to join us in positive outcomes just pushes everyone away. It makes no one want to be involved. And I, I have, I have just found it very disappointing. And it's not, and you know, and I say this with, and you know, Cora and Monica might, I know them both and I'm friendly with both. It's not you individually doing this. And I should, we should tell voters it's their campaigns. It's our campaign apparatuses. It's our, it's our strategists. It's our consultants telling us to do these things. We just don't have to listen to them. We don't have to attack each other this way. I will attack anyone who doesn't believe in universal healthcare. I'll attack them on policy issues. I will tell them that they're wrong. I will do that publicly. I have done that with Cora and Monica. I deeply believe they're wrong. I deeply believe that they are being caught. I believe that. And I'm willing to, not willing to yell at each other, yet tell, try to tell you as a voter, well, you know, you should vote for me and not her because I deserve it more. No, vote for the policies and talk about those things. So that, that's how we've dealt with that. It has been disappointing. And I hope that we can get away from that as Democrats, honestly. If you're listening to this now, the odds are that we lost, but we have spent today getting ballots in on the reservation to ensure that Native American and uh, youth targeted voter suppression laws are not successful. And we have tried to model campaign behavior and campaign policies that meet you as Montanans and voters and knows your integrity and your values and brings them to politics. And I just hope that if you've heard what we're talking about, you're inspired to run yourselves or to advocate or to do something or to do what Ezra does and be someone who's in the political sphere or in the sphere of thinking people talking about issues publicly. We need more of this. And so I just hope you heard these things and other people that Ezra has um, interviewed who are far more illustrious than I am. And you think, hey, I can do this too. I can make change because you can. So thank you, Ezra. I really appreciate the time. And hey, if you ever want to interview me, I'm a normal citizen probably, but give me a call or something. Love to help. News Nerds is produced and hosted by me. We're on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com where you can listen to hours of past content, subscribe to our newsletter, and contact us. Or listen wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on community radio station KGVM every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time. They're at kgvm.org or 95.9 FM on your radio. Consider supporting them by going to kgvm.org slash support dash KGVM.